Alright all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome one and all to episode 150 of the SLS Cast. Yes ladies and gentlemen, this of course is the worst defeat ever episode of the SLS Cast. And no, not because we consider actually having gone 150 episodes to be the worst defeat of either us, our lives, our money, our humanity. No, no, no. It's the worst ever defeat because it turns out that back in the 2011 AFL season, Australian Football League, round 20, Geelong inflicted the worst ever defeat on the Gold Coast Suns. They beat them. They didn't just beat them. They literally demoralized them. They're winning. They beat them by 150 points. And with that little bit of worst ever defeat knowledge, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from California, where I am sure he is not defeated either, it is, of course, our resident Sony employee. Tim, and yes, I do feel very defeated. Why is that? Or rather defeated. Why? I should say. Why? Well, I mean, today today has been a very it's been a very stressful evening for me, and I'm sure it is for millions of people out there because as you know, Star Wars pre-sale tickets were released today. True. This is the 19th of October in case anyone is currently under a rock somehow getting their podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> it's like next Sunday, and people are like, oh shit, gotta get these tickets! <laughs> uh, but no, because you probably still can't get these tickets, because the internet is still probably broken. And for those of you who are under under the rock, apparently the dealio was that there was a, a football game, an NFL game, the Giants versus whoever for Monday Night Football, and during halftime, the new trailer was going to drop for The Force Awakens, and then right after the trailer, the tickets were going to go on sale. So I thought, okay, well, the average NFL game's like three and a half hours or so, and if the game is supposed to start at 8.30 Eastern Time here in LA, it'll be 5.30. So... If I skip working out, uh, I can get off early, come home, and then be prepared to buy these tickets at halftime before we uh, we record the podcast. That was not the case. Apparently, they released the tickets at 5.15 before the game actually started. And I, I kind of think that was like an accident. Like somebody accidentally pushed the button to release the tickets, to let the floodgates open. And that kind of intrigues me a little bit because I wonder if that one person who has control of releasing all those tickets has the actual control of releasing all those tickets to where it's not like regulated by theater or Fandango or, you know, all these other ticket companies or whatnot. So, of course, I get on and kind of what Matt was experiencing before the show, it took forever. I was really wanting to see it at the Dome Theater couldn't get tickets there. And it was all in 3D. Didn't really want to see it in 3D. Try to get the Thursday 7 p.m. first showing tickets at the Chinese theater. That didn't work. So I thought, you know what? I'm just going to bite the bullet and get Friday night. And I actually managed to get Friday evening tickets. 
you're doing better than me still because <laughs> I mean the website like I go to the movie theater website we're sorry we we don't the traffic is down fandango is down movietickets.com this is the movie theater's website saying sorry folks you're fucked um and it's it's terrible they're like we're gonna try and add more showings. Please be patient. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. I'll shoot the moon, see what happens. They, they've only got a 1:20 in the morning show for uh, their very first available, and so I click on it. Waiting on server. Waiting on server. Oh, geez, come on, that's terrible. So I'm like, you know what? Okay, let's go ahead and shoot. And, and like you, Tim, 7 p.m. on Friday. Click. Waiting on server. Waiting on. They're the, yeah. They the server yeah. They crashed. Both, both times. So, oh, yeah. but at least you, you know you're going to see it on Friday. That is true. And and uh, the cherry on top, though, is I'm get to see it at the Chinese theater. The screen there. It's actually how I found out about this because I always heard that the Chinese theater, the IMAX screen, there is a big screen, but I never realized that it was the third largest IMAX screen in the United States. And I found that out last night when we when we went to go see Crimson Peak. Blew me out of the theater how amazing it was screen wise and so i'm really looking looking forward to it so i got lucky i got lucky this time matthew i got lucky well here's what i think is going to happen we're going to have a uh, hundred million people racing to the theater or racing online they're doing everything in their pos- power to get it but the simple fact of the matter was is the website that I, my, my theater preferred imax theater that i go to is like we're gonna add more shows. Basically, was the gist of it. I mean, they they said we're currently working on adding more show times, but that means they're gonna add more shows. I fully expect that within the next couple of days, they're gonna have this shit all the way to Wednesday night. You're gonna have like a Wednesday night midnight show, and that's gonna be the show. And then I'm gonna be like, ha ha, <laughs> all these suckers who've been like getting trying to stay online for like twelve fucking hours. To get their Friday night tickets. They're like, no! Curse you, internet! We've talked about this before, how usually it, it used to be the, you know, just a midnight showing. 12.01 was the first early showing of the movie. Because Correct. technically it was the day of. And whenever Revenge of the Sith came out, I went and saw it from her birthday the night it came out. Midnight showing, Friday morning at midnight. And it was it was fantastic. And then I think it was whenever I first started noticing the 7 p.m. showings is when the first Star Trek uh, reboot movie came out back in 2008, 2009. 2008, yeah. Mm. Or no, no, 2009. Yeah, 2009. So I kind of wonder, like, that was kind of a big movie and a lot of people flocked to go see it at 7 p.m., do you think by the time the next Star Wars movie comes out, they will end up doing the Wednesday night at 11.55 p.m.? Because currently, Star Wars Force Awakens will be playing Thursday night starting at 7 p.m., then 8 p.m., 10 p.m., midnight, 2 a.m., 2.30 a.m., 3 a.m., yes. 4 a.m., and, and it kind of goes on yeah, from there. And, and, I, and I'm... Very sad to do this to you and destroy the memory of the Sith for you. Uh, that was a 12.01 a.m. Wednesday movie as well. So I guess technically 
Thursday. No, night. it was yeah, not. Yeah, it was. That's it how was they boosted totally their numbers. Thursday. That's how they boosted their numbers. They the they had it, episode yeah, episode three. No, That's how they, I because they I, had a they had a five day opening weekend. No, I I promise you, it opened when I, at the the Woodland Cinemark Theater. The first showing was at midnight or right before midnight on Thursday and night sure, because I remember I, I, missing buddy, the next if, day. If that's when they had their first showing and that's where you were, then congratulations. I was at the AMC in Willowbrook on Wednesday night, so I don't know what to tell you. I don't know. We we, we need a we need to hire a legal uh, Just, the the SLS cast legal team because, to fact track. Because that was <laughs> that was the big thing was like, oh of course it had this big huge opening weekend, but then they started breaking it down and we're like, but was it only because they had a five-day opening weekend? So they look at this, you know, they, they literally start breaking it out and did the numbers, and it only really did okay. So it, it, it's irrelevant. I mean, at some so point— So do you think if you called the AMC, they would they can go back in their logs? Look out. I mean, <laughs> let's see here. Oh, was it Revenge of the Sith or some shit? Right? Revenge of the Sith. Yeah, there it is. Okay. So, Star Wars Episode 3. Okay. The info, please. Perpetual calendar. Looking up when a prequel Star Wars movie came out. Trying to figure out when it really came out. Good. Okay. So, May 2005. The 19th was a Thursday. And I went to the 12.01 a.m. So, Wednesday night at the theater, I was there for the 12.01. Technically, 12.01. And it had a five-day opening weekend. So, because people were buying tickets technically Wednesday night. So, if you went on the if you went third if you went that twelve oh one a.m. on the twentieth, congrats, bro. It was the first night I went. Who knows? Maybe maybe I was so excited that finally they released. Hey, hang on, hang on, hang on. Uh, I'm getting a phone call here. Hello, hello. Oh, I'm sorry. Legal team, we don't need you anymore. That's great. Have a nice night. Oh, we have we have the O.J. Simpson best on our side. <laughs> Uh, so you have uh, news of the interesting, right? Shall we move on from the Star Wars <laughs> talk? Since <laughs> yeah, let's do that. Let's or or unless your news of the interesting well, or actually, weird or whatever the, is, um, is pertaining to Star Wars. This comes to us from the folders of why even bother anymore. From foxnews.com. <clears throat> and uh, apparently this is pretty much just from foxnews.com. There is no direct attribution on this one. Playboy to stop publishing nude photos of women. <laughs> That's right, folks. Playboy is getting out of the nudes business. Starting with the March 2016 issue, the, Iconics, the Iconic Men's Magazine, which has been publishing photos of nude women since 1953, will be private part free. Quote, the political and sexual climate of 1953, the year Hugh Hefner introduced Playboy to the world, bears almost no resemblance to today. And quote, Playboy Enterprises CEO Scott Flanders said in a statement to Fox, stupid Flanders, quote, we are more free to express ourselves politically, sexually, and culturally today, and that's in large part thanks to Hef's heroic mission to expand those freedoms. We will stay true to those core values with this new vision of Playboy's future, end quote. Um, again, Scott Flanders is also quoted as saying, quote, you're now one click away from every sex act imaginable for free, and so it's just passe at this juncture, end quote. Um... 
they're going to continue to do photo spreads of chicks. They're just going to be scantily clad instead of nude, which at this point completely defeats the purpose. Look, I don't care what your opinion is on uh, whether or not it holds back feminism or if it's uh, overtly sexualizing or if it demeans women or anything that that isn't what this is about for me what this is about for me is why the fuck are you even bothering if this is what you do and this is your name and this is what you're known for and you're gonna stop then just fold i mean just just fold be done i mean what's next uh you know is the playboy channel now gonna host like you know political talk or something is there gonna be like a new talk show where the girls are there and they're just fully clothed maybe that's where donald trump is gonna do the next miss universe contest I don't know. So Playboy is basically going to be a more literate uh, Victoria's Secret magazine. Yes. Now, now you really <laughs> will read it for the articles because <laughs> there's no other reason to read it anymore. Um, anyway, so that was that was my. It's not really news of the weird, but um, like I said, from the folders of why even bother anymore. Uh, we we do not have any email this week. I opened up the email box and some moths flew out. So um, if you'd like to email us, you you can. It's the show at slscast.com. But in the meantime, I suppose we could do some real news now. Yes. Shall we? (laughs) Yes, we we shall. Why not? Yes, let's do it. Right now. Here we go, Go. folks. It's the news. First up from me, from tracking-board.com. That's right, folks. The Tracking Board. Hollywood's insider information. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, okay. Uh, this comes to us by way of Clark Allen. At the time of this uh, article's publication on October 15th, 2015, this was an exclusive for the tracking board says Seth Rogen in talks to star in James Franco's room drama, the disaster artist, the epic midnight movie. The room is getting the Hollywood treatment as James Franco's adaptation about the making of the phenomenon. The disaster artist is set to shoot this December. Uh, sources confirm that Seth Rogen's who's producing the pick with partner Evan Goldberg is also circling an undisclosed role. Rogen's attachment to the project shouldn't come as too big of a shock considering his penchant for collaborating both on and off screen with Franco and given his outspoken affection for the room. Scott Nudstatter and Michael Weber scripted the adaptation which james weaver and vince jolivet are also producing not unlike tommy Wiseau, the mysterious genius behind the room franco will wear several hats on the project directing producing and starring franco will take on the role of Wiseau, the enigmatic filmmaker who infamously created the cult classic which is often hailed as the best worst movie ever made uh, what do you think there, Tim? The article does carry on. It is a it is an interesting article and goes into a little bit more detail about the behind the scenes of the disaster artist, as well as what it's based on, which is uh, a book written by. Oh, good lord! Oh uh, yeah, uh, what, the, the, the creeper book. guy in the in yeah the, in whoever the... whoever yeah whoever was 
Lisa was cheating on, you know. Oh, no, I thought it was the kid who kept, like, who would, like, watch him have, like, bone in the living room in the bed. No, no, I thought, no, Sestero Sestero plays uh, Mark. Oh, well. And that's who Lisa cheats on Johnny with. But, at any rate, yeah, so it goes into those details there, and it's definitely. And that was the most serious conversation ever had of the room. (laughs) (laughs) Probably. Well, you know, I I wonder if it's going to be like, I mean, I know the story behind the room is ridiculous because of Tommy Wiseau, but I wonder if they're going to be playing it straight. Or if they're just going to kind of goofball it up a bit, you know what I mean? I think I think what's going to end up happening is I think they're probably because the movie itself is so outlandish. I think they'll be able to play the material somewhat straight, but it'll still be funny because it's so outlandish. I think where they will have some more fun is when they actually start filming the on-screen stuff or the whatever the stuff that was supposed to be in the film and i think that's going to be the ultra hammy crap because you have i mean there were outtakes there were things that were edited supposedly <laughs> so <laughs> um i think that'll probably be really fun but anyway what do you got for us sir Alrighty, okay so something i wasn't necessarily planning on reading but it pertains to star wars and actually what i was or what we were just kind of talking about during the pre-news portion of the show From CinemaBlend.com, movie theaters can't handle the demand for Star Wars The Force Awakens tickets. And uh, this was just released about nine or so hours ago. Again, this is October 19th. Unless you're just waking up from a coma, you probably know that there's a new Star Wars movie on the way later this year. A new trailer is scheduled to hit today, and anticipation is reaching a fever pitch. In fact, still two months out... Theaters are already having problems keeping up with the demand for tickets. According to The Hollywood Reporter, theater chains across the UK have been having a difficult time dealing with advanced orders for Star Wars The Force Awakens tickets, and a number of their websites have crashed under the pressure. Sound familiar? At least three theater companies... Odeon, Picture House, and Cineworld have all reported that there have been issues with their websites and that customers have had issues attempting to purchase The Force Awakens tickets, which just went on sale there. A representative for Picture House called The Demand Unprecedented, another chain, View, which has 80 theaters and is the third biggest exhibitor in the UK, and apparently one that hasn't had any issues with their sales platform at the moment, reportedly sold 10,000 tickets within 90 minutes of them becoming publicly available. This marks the, quote, biggest first hour of advanced ticket sales, end quote, that the company has seen thus far in 2015, and a spokesperson remarked that it usually takes weeks to reach this number. And I'll just end it there since this article kind of came out before the tickets went on sale in the u.s and so matthew don't you think this is kind of uh, like duh like star wars is the most this force awakens is probably the most anticipated movie ever made i mean i don't think i'm reaching too far by saying that and you kind of you you kind of think that people will be wanting to see this as soon as they possibly can First showing, first couple showings. So, of course, when people are going to look for tickets, they're going to look at the first couple showings. Now, why don't these ticket sites 
prepared for this stuff. They know they know what they're getting themselves into. Why don't they prepare? Matt, go. Because they don't care. It's just that simple. What what's the point? The the people who get in first are going to get in. If the server crashes, they'll they'll be there when the servers come back up. And the servers are only going to crash for let's say at worst 12 hours. Um and the ticket sales will move on anyway. And in the meantime, people will go down to the theater and buy them there. And, I mean, you know, that there's no point. <laughs> they don't give a shit. It's not worth it. It's just not worth it for 12 hours worth of work. Yeah, and I kind of wonder if also, like, the traffic on their website, even with people double, you know, like, uh, refreshing the page and, you know, going back to the link of the website, if that's just generating them more revenue via ads and Not if the server's clicks and whatnot. Oh, really? Well, the oh. server's crashed, so not getting any traffic. How about a loading page? What if you're just stuck on a loading page? I don't think so. Uh, Miranda, when you listen to this, you'll have to tweet out the proper answer, because <laughs> I believe she would know. Yes. SLS cast tech team. Get on it. <laughs> That's right, yes. We actually have one of those now, I guess, technically. <laughs> uh, anyway, weird. Uh, but yes, I would agree. Duh. So, <laughs> to answer your question more precisely. Uh, last up from me, uh, we've got from HollywoodReporter.com by way of Pamela McClintock. Warner Brothers' pan could lead to $150 million loss. The studio gambled big on the Peter Pan origin story in hopes of launching a new family franchise. And then they looked around and said, well, fuck, we're not Disney. Um, sorry, that's not what it says. Uh, don't count on Warner Brothers returning to Neverland anytime soon. Unless Joe Wright's big budget pan suddenly discovers a treasure trove of pixie dust, the movie could see losses in the $130 million to $150 million range after opening to a disastrous $15.3 million in North America over the nine 11 weekend according to analysts and box office experts contacted by the hollywood reporter no one would yet speak on the record uh let's see here uh pan is also struggling internationally grossing 20.4 million over the weekend from 54 markets for an early foreign total of 25.2 million uh it opened two weeks ago in australia and a meek worldwide hume of 40 and a half million one wild card is china where the film rolls out October 22nd, if Pan does better than expected in the world's second largest movie market, the losses could be lower. Um, all right, the article carries on from there. Warner Brothers, they had grand ambitions. They got all the stuff. They got grand star power with Hugh Jackman. They've got an origin story for Peter Pan and Hook out of this thing. Um, and then nobody cares. See, this is this is the problem with... Uh, trying to recreate something that Disney cornered the market on. Nobody gives a flying fuck. You are literally going to have to find some kind of fairy tale that Disney hasn't touched yet and appropriate that. The only reason Hook uh, survived was because it literally did something that had never been done with the Peter Pan franchise, and that was a sequel that takes place 30-something years later, theoretically. Um, also, Steven Spielberg. 
and the 90s. I mean, come on, right? So, I just, my personal question, and it's, it is a good article. I would definitely read the whole article. I, I just, I mean, it's it's a lengthy article, and I don't want to get into the whole deal of it. I guess my question is, for Warner Brothers, is how the fuck could they not see this coming? Why did they even try? Why I don't understand why they could bother. What do you think, Tim? I mean, do you think this is at all surprising? Do you care? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, the movie looked good based on the trailers, and it did kind of pique my imagination, I guess, watching it. Oh, so you saw this movie? I, I No, no, I saw the trailer for it. Oh, okay. Yeah, the trailer looked really good. And I think a big problem, and what, what I couldn't help but remembering while watching the trailer, is the Peter Pan movie that came out back in 2003 which had Jason Isaacs. And that one did okay. Uh, it was a Universal and Columbia Pictures movie. So I, I don't know. I just it, and, and I remember watching it, and they had that U2. I think it was a U2 or a Coldplay song at the very beginning. And, of course, if it's Coldplay or U2, it has, it's very inspirational, and it gives you that funky feeling inside of, ooh, until you've heard various variations of that same song over the years over and over again. But while watching the pan trailer, you kind of got that feeling as well, because there's only so many ways you can sell a Peter Pan live-action film that is supposed to inspire you, not necessarily inspire you, or to get your, your imagination juices flowing. Very much like U2 and Coldplay. There's only so much you can do with a U2 and a Coldplay song. But, yeah, that's kind of pretty much how I felt, was that it was, I mean, even with a Peter Pan movie that came out 12 years ago, it's just a little too soon unless you're Disney. <laughs> I think it'll always be too soon unless you're Disney. Um, all right. Well, that is my news. So bring us home on the news, sir. Okay. Uh, we have some time, and I have plenty of news. I'm going to knock out some of the small uh, pieces of news first. Uh, first up, something that I kind of found very uh, interesting. Everybody pretty much knows who Monty Python is. If you know Star Wars and you're of age, you should have at least heard the name of Monty Python and have been uh, exposed to either the fish slapping dance or the parrot sketch. Well, one thing that the Pythons are most known for is, in addition to their uh, their, their brand of comedy, is their animation within the TV show, as well as the animation in the movies, in their in their films. And the animation was done by none other than the great Terry Gilliam, who has gone off and written and directed many of well-regarded, well-known, and especially cult classic films. Well, it turns out that 14 minutes of Lost Monty Python and the Holy Grail animation has been restored, and it is now online for you to check out. Monty Python and Holy Grail is celebrating their, what is it, the 40th anniversary? Yeah, 40th anniversary. And it just seems, I, I think like every five years, they re-release Monty Python and the Holy Grail in a new special edition DVD. And I don't know if this is like their first Blu-ray. I know, it's been on Blu-ray before. But one of their main, uh, main selling points for you to go out and buy the new Blu-ray is because it will feature this new animation. But there's really no reason to go out and buy it if you already have it. If you don't have it, it's totally worth it, I'm sure. But you can go online and watch the 14 minutes 
of the Terry Gilliam animation. Him and a team of other people went back and uh, restored the film, added new audio and sound and music, and he even does like a little commentary uh, track, which basically is him just kind of making fun of the Monty Python Corporation. So it's worth checking out if you are a fan of Monty Python animation. Next stop, we're all familiar with the upcoming all-female cast Ghostbusters film, and we all somewhat are familiar with the possibility of there being an all-male Ghostbusters film. Well, it turns out, according to the rap, a Ghostbusters animated movie in the works at Sony Pictures Animation. Uh, and this is this article came out on October 1st, so a few weeks ago. Ivan Reitman will produce the project, which will come on the heels of Paul Feig's live-action reboot. In advance of Paul Feig's upcoming live-action reboot, Sony is expanding its planned Ghostbusters universe by putting an animated Ghostbusters movie into development at Sony Pictures Animation. The rap has learned... A Sony representative denied that it was developing such a project as recently as two weeks ago, but Studio Insiders now confirm that an animated film is currently in the works. The studio will soon begin hearing takes from writers and insiders suggest that the story will be told from a ghost's point of view. Like the animated TV show The Real Ghostbusters that ran on ABC from September 1986 to October of 91, The animated Ghostbusters movie will feature a group of scientists who team up to battle supernatural forces. The story won't necessarily take place in Manhattan, as supernatural activity is not limited to a single borough in New York City. Ivan Reitman will produce the animated Ghostbusters movie for Ghost Corpse, while SPA President Christine Belson and Michael Lachance will oversee the project on behalf of of the studio, and it goes on from there. Um, this is not insider information from me. I am not familiar with this whatsoever, but I think this is worth uh, mentioning. And before I get Matt's opinion on uh, on on these mini pieces of news, I'm going to throw in another mini piece of news for you to munch on. A sequel to Cabin in the Woods. Apparently, Warner Brothers Studios wasn't expecting the cult status that the first movie garnered, and they would like Drew Goddard to write and possibly to direct a new Cabin in the Woods movie. Uh, And this is according to Den of Geek, uh, and it says this, Drew Goddard is currently on the promotional tour for The Martian, the movie that he's penned the screenplay for and was at one time set to direct. Chatting to us at the film's junket, the conversation with Jew, uh, with Jew, oh my god, not Drew Goddard, with Drew Goddard soon moved on to The Cabin in the Woods. We quizzed Goddard on the rumor of a possible sequel to the film, and he confirmed to us that, quote, the studio wants to do it. They've come to us, end quote. Quote, the funny part is, I don't think we planned the movie to be a sequel, you know? We did suggest that the ending of the first film doesn't exactly leave too many open ends, but Goddard said, quote, it doesn't. But that being said, the fun thing about Cabin is the rules are pretty crazy. We get away with a lot of crazy stuff. So I'm sure we could figure it out if we got inspired to. I know Joss and I both feel like we don't want to tarnish what we did with the first one with the sequel. We'd only do it if it made us laugh hard enough, I suppose, end all quotes. 
So that's good. At least Joss Whedon Drew and yeah, not Drew Goddard. God damn it, Drew Goddard <laughs> won't do the movie unless they absolutely come up with a good idea that doesn't tarnish the brilliance of the first movie. So what do you think, Matt? Do you have any comments, questions, concerns with a possible sequel to Cabin in the Woods? Or even a Ghostbusters animated film. Um. Okay, I don't think they should do another Cabin in the Woods. I'm uh, at this point. I think I'm pretty much over horror. It 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 really doesn't do anything for me anymore, on the whole. And it's just so hard to find anything decent in this in this genre anymore for me. Um, today, I'm not saying we can't go back and watch other films and stuff like we did before with like the Italian horror and all that kind of stuff. So forget that. Uh, in terms of the Ghostbusters, I don't know. I mean, produced by Ivan Reitman, that's good. Um, kind of the fact that they're doing it in concert or not even, it doesn't matter. The fact that they're already producing another live-action one, and then they're trying to do the animated one, uh, I, I don't know anymore. I, 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 I don't know. And there you go. That's all I have to say about those. Alrighty, and to wrap up the news completely here, I'm just going to do one more, and it's really not longish i guess uh but it's from io9 and i i wanted to bring to talk about this one in particular because it's something that you really don't hear much about uh or, or this particular thing rarely ever ever actually happens a french court rules that luke besson's lockout ripped off escape from new york this is written by Catherine trinacosta and this article was published on october 16th and it says this, Luke Besson's Eurocorp has to pay out 800,000 euros after a French court ruled that lockout was pretty much a copy of Escape from New York. There are a number of interesting things to note about this case. First of all, French copyright law is, in general, much more plaintiff friendly than America's. Second, the French court noted that the fact that reviews of lockout had mentioned the similarities— as much as filmmakers like to blame reviewers for losing the money, it's actually somewhat true in this case. A report on the ruling from Legepresse explains the court's logic in saying that, quote, The court recalled that although ideas are free to be used and there could be no protection merely for the theme of the film, it was nevertheless possible to consider whether the form of the film was not a characteristic feature and whether its reproduction was such as to constitute infringement of copyright. This was determined by considering similarities rather than differences. End quote. Legepressie summarized the damning similarities the courts found, or the court found, saying, quote, the court nevertheless noted many similarities between the two science fiction films. Both presented an athletic, rebellious, and cynical hero sentenced to a period of isolated incarceration, despite his heroic past, who is given the offer of setting out 
to free the President of the United States or his daughter, held hostage in exchange for his freedom. He manages, undetected, to get inside the place where the hostage is being held after a flight in a glider-slash-space shuttle, and finds there a former associate who dies. He pulls off the mission in Extremis, and at the end of the film, keeps the secret documents recovered in the course of the mission. End quote. Almost all of this description sounds pretty generic. Taken separately, things like, quote, athletic, rebellious, and cynical hero, end quote, and, quote, manages undetected to get inside the place where the hostage is being held, end quote, sound like things that every action movie has. And if the press noting a similarity could damn you, every, quote, diehard on a blank, end quote, movie would be in serious trouble. But under French law, these two films were apparently close enough that Eurocorp had to pay out 20,000 euros to John Carpenter and 10,000 euros to escape from New York co-writer Nick Castle and finally 500,000 euros to the rights holder Studio Canal. Eurocorp is appealing, saying that the similarities are common film tropes and that the ruling strifles artistic expression. End all quotes. So that's kind of interesting. Again, you hardly, or I say hardly, but you never hear about a court, regardless of, of where in the world. You never hear of a court taking the side of not the movie studio. So this is kind of interesting. What do you think, Matt? Is this, I mean, was the, the circumstances still too blasé, or does it make sense that Luke Besson could be at fault here? Given the fact that I've never heard of this movie, I, I think he's got a shot. <laughs> I get. I mean, you know, maybe 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 this movie did better in international markets. I'm not sure, but um, I I don't know. In all fairness, individually, each one of each one of these things could be like, oh, you're taking it out of context or whatever. But then when you put it all together. I mean, they clearly made enough of an argument to say I would need personally, I would need to watch both movies before I could really make a value judgment. Um, But president's daughter, president's daughter, space prison versus president kidnapped in New York city, turned into a prison. Eh. Those on again, those on their own. No. But if we watched the movie side by side or whatever, one after the other, then maybe there's more of a narrative flow that they just kind of seem to match a little too closely. So are you proposing this no. to be one of our, uh, you know, who did it better? No, no, no. Next week on the SLS cast. Uh, well, actually, you know what? <laughs> we don't have a bonus segment for next week. Do you want to try and find these movies for a copycat throwdown? Uh, technically this was just ruled a copycat (laughs) (laughs) yeah we can all right let's give it a shot okay was that all for you sir yeah yeah i'll i'll end my news there all right well in that case we're gonna bring it back to i'm the only one who liked it 
Who is the one that liked this movie? Not me. Who is the one that wants to watch again? Oh, you? Who is the one that wants to watch the movie? That was stupid. I'm the only one that liked it. That's me, folks, watching the movie. Oh man. I like that movie and nobody else did. All right. So this week on I'm the Only One Who Liked It, uh, do you want me to go first, Tim, or do you want to go first? After you. Oh, okay. Uh, let's see. Milady. I am going to <laughs> pick a movie that is definitely a cult uh, favorite and is also on... Uh, a lot of worst film lists, but is usually supplanted by an even more terrible, but much high, much a much more highly regarded cult film because this film is made by the same guy as the other film, and that film would be 1953's Glenn or Glenda. It is a docudrama written, directed, and starring. Written, directed by, and starring Ed Wood. Now, you've probably, you know, in your film uh, pop culture references and stuff over the last 20 or 30 years, you've probably heard the name Ed Wood. He is most usually referenced in another film, again, Plan 9 from Outer Space. Anybody who has ever heard of Ed Wood has usually heard of that film. There was also the 90s film, Featuring Johnny Depp called Ed Wood. So, um, and, and people may have seen that. Glenn or Glenda is a much more personal tale for Ed Wood because he was a transvestite and he was not gay, but he simply enjoyed wearing women's clothes. If you need a, uh, another, dated reference to that if you remember the drew carey show um mimi's boyfriend and i think somehow related to drew might have been his brother i don't know at least on the show was also a transvestite but again only into the clothes this film was made as kind of a not a mea culpa if you will but definitely a plea, nonetheless, to kind of be tolerant of transvestites. And yet, it's still an Ed Wood film. And it's got Bella Lugosi in it, because Bella Lugosi was old and poor and desperate, and Ed Wood thought, man, this guy's awesome. I gotta use him in my movies. And so that's how that happened. The movie in and of itself, objectively, is not good. But it is definitely one of those that is so bad it is good. And uh, has it just has a charm to it. Because it's kind of like, and I, and I feel bad for saying this in a way, but it's true. It's kind of like when you see your favorite little niece or nephew. Or when you're, for those of you with a kid... When you see your kindergartner come up to you and there's just a bunch of scribbles on the page and they say, look, mommy, it's a lion. Or look, daddy, look, uncle, whoever, right? It's a lion. And you can clearly see that it's a bunch of fuchsia fucking scribbles on the page. 
but you go, oh, that's a great lion, good job, kid, because you want them to feel good about their effort uh, so that they will be encouraged to develop appropriately so that they will eventually color in the lines and then eventually use the right colors and hopefully maybe at some point realize they can't draw and switch to coloring or that they can't draw and just move on or that they can actually draw. See, the thing with Ed Wood was that he never got past the scribbling thing. And so his movies don't actually get any better. But it's kind of like that because he put so much heart and soul into it and he really did legitimately care that it's just kind of like, oh, it doesn't look like a lion, but oh, good job, kiddo. And it's that aspect of it that makes me like it. That and, again, the so bad it's good qualities. And just really, this is the only movie out of 53 that was legitimately viewed by critics that covers this kind of material. So you have that going for you as well. Um, check it out. Have a good evening. Sit back. Get high. Get drunk. Party it up. Just chat with friends. Have it in the background at your next party. And maybe make it the precursor to showing Plan 9 from Outer Space at your Halloween parties next week. And, uh, yeah. There you go. Hey, hey, bros. Hey, man, I know you really want to watch Days Confused tonight, but I have this movie called <laughs> Glenn or Glinda that I think we should totally watch with the babes. Absolutely. It's got a little something for everybody. <laughs> uh, all right. What do you got for us, sir? My I'm the only one who liked it uh, is a film that I probably am the only one who liked it for all the wrong reasons. I think I can honestly say, I can say that comfortably. Nicolas Cage is a man <laughs> related to, he's a Coppola, born in 1964 in Long Beach, California. Born Nicholas Kim Coppola. Uh, in the early 90s, he's made a, a lot of classic films, you know, including Honeymoon in Vegas, Wild at Heart. He did even Amos and Andrew, which... Whatever. I mean, it was him and Sam Jack. Uh, he did Guarding Tess, even. It Could Happen to You. He did a little comedy that a lot of people really didn't like, but it was still kind of funny. Trapped in Paradise. Leaving Las Vegas, of course. Uh, then you have his ac great action movies that came out in 96 and 97. The Rock, Con Air, Face Off. He pulled on our heartstrings in 98 with City of Angels. He proved to us again in 98 how much of a badass he was in Snake Eyes. 1999, he showed us how, how uncomfortable he could make us in, in a movie that is just ungodly uncomfortable, which is 8mm. He did Bringing Out the Dead with Martin Scorsese. You know, and his, his movies go on from there. And really, his number one flub before the movie that I'm going to talk about was... Captain Corelli's Mandolin from 2001, where he was terribly miscast as Captain Corelli in his Mandolin. I'm going to Ma play the Mandolin. <laughs> I was hoping you'd say that. <laughs> uh, and then he did Wind Talkers, which the movie didn't do all that well. But what I'm getting at is that in 2002, he had a little resurgence with uh, Adaptation as well as Matchstick Men. And he found his footing with movies like National Treasure and in the indie circuit with Lord of War and The Weatherman. In 2006, he decided to try his hand in a horror movie with 
in 2006's The Wicker Man, where he played Edward, Edward, Edward Mollus, or Malice. I think it's Malice. I, I can't remember. Um, the Wicker Man is a remake of the 1973 film written by Robin Hardy, written by Anthony Schaefer, uh, and Christopher Lee was in this one as well as Edward Woodard, or Edward Woodward. And this one follows virtually the same storyline of, according to IMDb here, a sheriff investigating the disappearance of a young girl from a small island discovers there's a larger mystery to solve among the island's secretive neo-pagan community. And before I continue with this, that's going to be spoiler heavy, I highly recommend you for you right now, if you haven't seen this, to drink a whole bunch of tequila and maybe smoke a bag a pot, and spend the next 102 minutes to basically veg out and, and, and watch this film, because it is a hoot. I will tell you that it is a hoot. On IMDb, it currently has a 3.6 star rating. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes, it has a 15% rotten on the tomato meter, where the general consensus is, quote, puzzling, misguided, Neil Laboot's update, the Wicker Man struggles against unintentional comedy and fails. Uh, 16 people found it fresh, while 90 people found it rotten. Uh, the awards it was nominated for surprisingly didn't win. In 2007, it was nominated for four Academy or four Academy four uh, Razzie Awards: Worst Screenplay, Worst Remake or Spinoff, Worst Actor for Nicolas Cage, Worst Picture, and Worst Screen Couple between Nicolas Cage and his bear suit. You heard that right. He has a relationship with his bear, bear suit. Not really, but he spends a portion of the movie in a bear suit where he's trying to blend in with this very... I, I, I don't want to... I mean, cultish might be a good way to, you know, to explain the characters that are inhabiting this island that he's on. The movie is absolutely ridiculous. And for those of you who have seen it, I know the one thing that you cannot help but to remember from this film is... Oh, no, no, not the beast! Not the beast! Ah! Oh, no, my eyes! My eyes! Ah! Ah! <laughs> that is right. The bees! Oh no, the bees! They're all over me! The bees! Which is just Nicolas Cage screaming and whining about bees that were later added by the use of CGI. And it is super obvious because it is Nicolas Cage pretending that he is being attacked by bees. And what makes this movie very interesting is that this was the first bad when I, yeah, this was pretty much the first bad Nicolas Cage movie that I saw at the movie theater. The trailers for it made the movie look pretty good. The technical aspects of the film are, is very good. It was well made. The movie has a fun look to it. The costumes are good, despite what the costumes are. It's just the movie and how everything plays out is absolutely ridiculous and bonkers. Everything from how the neo-pagan community of folk, how they, uh, how they act, how they carry out their rituals, the face paint. Oh, yeah, I mean, oh my God. Ellen Burstyn is in it. 
And she wears this ridiculous face paint where she has this long flowing hair. She's wearing this very pagan hippie gown and half of her face is blue and the other half is white. And it's just, it's, it's corny. It's kind of like every horror movie that you've watched in recent years, whether it be like Paranormal Activity or pretty much just Paranormal Activity where you're just waiting for the scare to happen, but it's just the door creaks open or the door just closes or the bed shakes a little bit. This is pretty much what's in this movie, but it's more visual and it's more ridiculous. Instead of the door just closing or the bed just moving, there's just a really goofy looking homeless person with face paint on just kind of hanging out in the back. I mean, that's kind of like the the scare. You know, there's really not much to it, just absolute ridiculousness, which makes, again, the movie that much more entertaining. This is one of the first movies where you see Nicolas Cage giving his all based on the money that he received for the film. Yeah, this was the start of his spiral down when it came to his choices in movies. And it's just funny because, then you again, you, you continue looking through his catalog of movies, and that same year he even did the World Trade Center movie the, with Oliver Stone. And then he went on and did other bombs and other, and other critically acclaimed films. I mean, we've talked about Nicolas Cage, Cage's films and how he's had great movies and he's had very sad ones. But this definitely takes the cake when it comes to the classic hilarity of the Nicolas Cage filmography. So that is why I am more than likely the only one that likes Nicolas Cage's 2006 remake, The Wicker Man. Fun times. All right. Well, as we uh, that does bring us to the end of I'm the Only One Who Liked It. And as we discussed uh, in reverse order, doing show prep, uh, <laughs> apparently <laughs> on the show, <laughs> uh, because, you know, that's just how we do it sometimes. Uh, like our friends over at uh, Mayor versus the Noob there. We're going to do a copycat throwdown next week. So we're going to be copycat throwdowning, 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 whatever. It's a copycat throwdown. The matchup is... We're going to be a copycat throwdowning. (laughs) God damn it. (laughs) The matchup for the copycat throwdown next week is Escape from New York versus... Lockout. Um, this ought to be interesting. <sighs> and I guess without further ado, that is going to bring us to the movies, will it not, sir? It will. Unless oh. unless you want to talk more about the Wicker Man. No, no, no. Maybe maybe we should have a remake of Glenn or Glenda featuring Nicolas Cage, where he has a nightmare <laughs> about being exposed as uh a furry. Uh, no, no, no. Where he has a nightmare about being exposed as a transvestite. And then instead of screaming the bees, the bees, he can scream like the bras, the bras. or so. I don't know. Anyway. All right. So <laughs> here we go, folks. It's the movies. Come in and make yourself comfortable. While I tell you the story of the scariest Halloween ever. <laughs> Did I scare you? I hope so. Because I'm a haunted house. And the 
That's what I'm here for. To scare you. <laughs> If you're brave enough to come closer, you'll soon find out what a perfect haunted house I really am. And I have ghosts that can move right through you. <laughs> have I scared you yet? <laughs> you hear that? That's the old hoot owl. He doesn't even get too close to me. So feared am I. You would think I would be the envy of every other haunted house. And this week's films are Goosebumps, Crimson Peak, and the 1986 film House. Where do you want to start, sir? Uh, why, don't we, why don't we start off with 1986's House? Sounds like a plan. Or it sounds like a house. Well, I meant that uh, starting off with House sounds like a plan. But whatever. All right, so we... <laughs> well, well, you do need a plan to build a house. This is true. And and blueprints, even. Especially this house. <laughs> Too uh, bad they didn't have a blueprint for the script. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. All right, so it's a 1986 comedy horror film. It's directed by Steve Miner and stars William Cat, George Went, Richard Mole, and Kay Lenz. Uh, for those of you not familiar with the with the 80s and pop culture and tv we've got the greatest american hero the greatest american bar hero and the greatest american bailiff <laughs> all in a movie together uh let's see here they they actually believe it or not this movie did spawn not one not two but three sequels only one of which actually made it to the theaters and does not even acknowledge that the first movie ever even existed. So it's really kind of, okay, I don't, whatever. Uh, so what we have is a guy by the name of Roger Cobb, who is an author of horror novels, who is actually a very scared kind of guy. Uh, he gets... Um, he, he, he gets... Uh, a house through his aunt and then decides to live in this house instead of trying to sell it uh, to try and write a book because he's getting pressured by his publisher and everything, you know, and, and everything. His life's falling apart, but whatever. He needs to write a book. So he gets into the house, strange things start happening, and it turns out that there is much more than meets the eye to not just the house, but his situation. Uh, I'll leave it at that in terms of, you know, remaining spoiler-free as I like to do. This film for me, I actually, first time I ever saw this movie was, um, I want to say probably like 1988, 1989. And I saw it on VHS. Uh, my mom and stepdad had gone off to the Blockbuster and come back with House and House 2. Um, and so we sat down and decided to give him a shot and I was feeling like really grown up because I don't generally get to watch these kinds of horror films or whatever. Um, but apparently it had been recommended more heavily on the comedy side than the horror side. This one actually attempts to be somewhat scary. The second one, however, 
not scary. It, it's really not. It, it's still technically comedy horror, but it's much more trying to be funny than anything else. Now, I was definitely, I wouldn't say that I was like, oh my goodness, this was so scary to me. But there was definitely some good jumps in there. And I thought at for being, you know, 10, 11 years old in that neighborhood, that um, it was pretty spooky and stuff like that. But going back and watching this film again, it's got problems, y'all. Um, it hasn't aged very well. I think for the time that it came out, I think it was, I would, I think I would give it like for its time, say a three, <laughs> I think, um, if I was this age today, but, um, I, I, the only thing that salvages this movie for me is really that I did like it when I was a kid. The writing, as was alluded to, is wonky. And not because the writing in itself is bad. The writing simply just isn't being used correctly to advance the story. It's more like just, hey, look, this is happening and let's talk about it. Let's, let's, and, um, and what could have been used to create a pretty cool, finale was instead just kind of like hey let's just drop this out of the sky and see if it sticks well of course it's gonna stick because it's shit falling from the sky and hitting the ground um it's it it was a clever idea and i think that for that day it was somewhat entertaining but it doesn't hold up it doesn't age well and even with the nostalgia factor, the best, the absolute best that I can give it is 2.75. It's a little bit better than okay, but I can't even really say that I liked it. And that's having liked it from when I was a kid. So there you go, folks. That's House from 1986. Expect no cameos <laughs> from that wonderful guy in the TV show. All right. What do you got, sir? So, I mean, like, is House 2, does it still kind of play around with the whole Vietnam No, thing? no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Matter of fact, Wild West. Like the TV show? No, no, no. Just oh, the Wild oh, West. Oh, the Wild West. Yes, the Wild West. Oh, yeah. Um, the it's Vietnam... a lot more fun. Truly, it's a lot more fun. That's why I said it's, a, it's, it's much more on the comedy side. Now, I did not rewatch House 2, but um, I enjoyed House 2 a lot more growing up than I did house um, clearly. So anyways, but yeah. Oh, I, I couldn't tell what this movie house was going for. It was very uneven and the writing is just very inconsistent. Characters just pop up randomly. Like what Matt was saying, things actually just pop up as well that are just there to push, to move the story along, to give it another thing for the character to either deal with or another problem for the character to fix. Like, when he has that decapitated monster and he's planning on burying it in his yard and that woman is suddenly in in the pool and he meets the sexy woman and she leaves and then moments later in the film she pops back up and drops off her kid and then he has to spend the next 10 minutes of the movie 
watching her kid. And then he gives the kid to her later on after saving him. And that's the end of both characters. It just doesn't really make sense. I mean, the, really the, the most consistent thing in the movie is George Went. <laughs> I mean, seriously, his character as the goofy neighbor, the goofy next door neighbor. Think of the other goofy neighbor from the Burbs, Tom Hanks's neighbor from the Burbs. Just very consistent throughout the entire movie. And that's pretty much it. Because the tone of the movie, it's hard to tell if it was trying to be an all-out comedy or a drama or if it was supposed to be a social satire given the heavy influence that the Vietnam War had on the character in his writing. And pretty much the story story as a whole, um, which becomes more apparent by the film's end. Because the movie is very goofy. There's hints of the playful fun of Evil Dead 2. But that playfulness is also mixed in with the horrors of, say, Platoon. You know, where you're dealing with leaving comrades behind instead of shooting them, shooting them in the head and leaving them for uh, the Japanese to capture them and torture them to death. It was, it was just very strange. Very strange. And though I do appreciate the levels that the film was trying to go for in trying to incorporate the whole uh, character backstory with the overall plot of the film. And also because it wasn't a straight-up slasher or gore flick. It just needed more cohesiveness to it. But they did do a good job with the special effects for its time. They tried very hard to to make the aged look of the film. Why? Well, I guess now it's, it's the special effects are very aged. But they're very cheap uh, special effects, especially for that day. And given the budget that they kind of had... Uh, they did a pretty good job with trying to make it look a little little convincing for the scares, I guess. But overall, it's just a very uneven teeter-totter of a, of a movie. But I think in some way, it, it, it does have its charming moments. Yet, I cannot give this a good rating. So I am dead in the middle, 2.5 out of 5. Fair enough. All right. point. Five. Good Lord, Matt. 2.5 out of 5. All right, and where would you like to turn from here, sir? Beware the crimson peak. Oh, God. All right, well, here we go, folks. 2015 gothic romance film. Directed by Guillermo del Toro and written by del Toro and Matthew Robbins. Uh, film stars Mia Wasikowska, Tom Hiddleston, Jessica Chastain, Charlie Hunnam, and Jim Beaver. Um... All right. <laughs> His last name was Beaver. Yeah. You <laughs> said Beaver. We really need um, to get the cats uh, sleeping, the sound bite of him sleeping, because he totally sounds it's up, like... It's already up on Mediafire. You can, you can have it. Oh, seriously? Because yes. he, he totally sounds like a Beavis and or Butthead heaving. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I kind of like the narcoleptic narcoleptic son of Darth Vader that Raphael's got going on. But yes, yes, yeah, it's there. You can have it. Sorry, kitty. <laughs> and for, for those of you who do not know what we're talking about, you gonna. Listen. <laughs> You're gonna.
Okay. All right. Um, I, I don't... Uh, th- okay, let me sum this up up front. This is a film that failed spectacularly by achieving exactly what it was trying to achieve. Okay? Um, in its attempt to be much like the gothic uh, source material of the period they were trying to recreate, they succeeded. The thing is, is that there's a reason we don't see gothic novels anymore. Uh, there is a reason why they refer to it as the gothic period. There is a reason why we don't behave in the manners that befit the ideas that were prevalent in in that day. Now, that's not to say you can't do historical dramas and everything like that, but you have to be able to make slight compromises in the way you present that material so that people who watch it today can appreciate the time period and can appreciate the story you're trying to tell, but not sit there wondering if someone took a script from 18, say, 39, and (laughs) tried to make something with it. Um, We're following the young daughter, Edith Cushing. Uh, this is a uh, industrialist, a mining guy by the name of Carter Cushing. He loves his daughter, cares for his daughter, and of course allows her to be a precocious young woman who dares to be a writer when other women aspire to just be women appropriate in their social sphere for being rich in that day. Uh, she is clearly loved by the doctor, played by Charlie Dunham, Dr. Alan McMichael, who has all of the convincingness of, say, a biker who, from from like a Sons of Anarchy show, trying to play a doctor in this time period. <clears throat> Um, there is also, like, anything that is meant to be scary that they try and set you up for in the trailers uh, is immediately dispelled, 100% immediately dispelled uh, within the first, say, 68 seconds of the movie, give or take, about five seconds. And while it's still a little unsettling to look at, and I guess that's still supposed to be scary, it's self-defeating because they've already explained why what you're seeing is there, and that in and of itself, that's supposed to be scary. Hmm. Um, it is 100% predictable. It is even the people who are good actors like Jessica Chastain and Tom Hiddleston cannot save such horribly stilted and flaccid writing that it comes off bad. These people come off as wooden. Um, Jim Beaver is actually a really 
really good character actor that I thoroughly enjoy watching. He has had a really cool career doing all sorts of cool stuff, and I enjoy watching him. And so when I saw that it was him, I was like, holy crap, this is going to be good. And then he talked for more than like eight seconds, and I was like, who the hell was writing for this motherfucker? And then I remembered who wrote it. Um, I'm pretty much sure that the reason why everything got taken away from Guillermo del Tormo was because the executives saw this fucking movie ahead of time and knew what the train wreck it was going to be. Now, it might still make at least its money back. But uh, not not based on this past weekend. It opened number four. No, no, I know. I mean, but it, it only had a fifty-five million dollar budget. So, oh, gotcha. Worldwide, it I could see it at least breaking even, barely. But we'll see. Um, and it's just any everything that's meant to be shocking is stupid. Um, every, and, and given away everything is given away because it's done in a gothic style that doesn't make sense anymore oh, I appreciate I have gothic literature I have like for example and, and also uh, gothic going into Victorian with things like um, uh, Conan Doyle and oh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea I can't think of his name off the top of my head and I, that's ter- it's terrible that I can't think of his name um, but authors like that, I have read Shelley's Frankenstein, so I understand the idea behind Gothic literature and also moving into Victorian literature as well. Jules Verne? Thank you, yes, Jules Verne. And it's it's wonderful stuff for its day, and you can appreciate that literature because you are looking at that and you still get to picture it in your mind and translate that in ways that are good for you to enjoy that and have it in your imagination today. But if you try to watch Sherlock Holmes, even the the movies with Robert Downey Jr., and they use the writing that was in those books, you would sit there and go, what the fuck is this? This is stupid. You may as well have just resurrected Razzle ba- uh, Basil Rathbone and just done the Sherlock Holmes shit from the 30s. That's the problem with this movie. Special effects are decent, for sure, but just everything about this movie is bad. The writing is bad. The story is completely and fucking pointless because it's totally predictable. And even if it wasn't predictable, they tried to make up for it by giving it away at the beginning so that you can follow this adventure of this poor, young Edith Cushing. <sighs> <clears throat> and none of it works. So you've then got key supporting players who, one of which basically can't act and the other of which is basically given bad writing. You then have main players who are decent actors or amazing actors and then you're, again, trashed by the writing. I appreciate Guillermo del Toma. I, 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 uh, I'm sorry, Guillermo del Toro. I appreciate him. And there are certain numbers of his works that I like. This is not one. I came very, very close to walking out of this movie about 20 minutes in. But I decided, nope, nope, it's for the show. I need it. I got to watch it. I got to sit through. 
And it does get a little bit better if you give the special effects a chance and you just resign yourself to the fact that this is that this is extremely, extremely faithful to the period and the way that gothic writing was done and performed, then it becomes slightly more bearable. But at the end of the day, I give this 1.75. Wait, 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 was that was that a point seven five, as a as in zero point seven five? No, no, one point seven five. And here's why. Here's why. Because the special effects are very good, and I can at least appreciate what he was attempting to do. Like I said, that's why I tried to sum up at the beginning with a spectacular failure based upon achieving exactly what it was that you were trying to do. So, yeah, 1.75. So, I went into this movie, based on the trailer, really looking forward to it. It's gotten some pretty good reviews. A lot of people love it. People were calling it you know, a really good love story, where that is where the, uh, the horror... Uh, is kind of manifested from is is the gothic horror story or excuse me the gothic love story within the film and so the trailer of the movie was brilliant it had beautiful creepy music the visuals look stunning the 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 look of the movie was great and the movie had this great atmosphere to it that i just couldn't wait to uh to experience and and at the very end of the movie, I took my significant other uh, to the movie with me, and we saw it on the the big IMAX screen, the third largest in the, in the United States, I will add. And so that kind of helped add to the experience. And the first thing she said when the movie was over, she leaned over to me and said, and here I thought the Crimson Peak was going to turn out to be the midpoint of her period. Meaning <laughs> that the mid the, the midpoint would be the woman's crimson peak. I could see that she was told when she was a child, "Beware of crimson peak." <laughs> <laughs> oh Jesus! I'm sorry. Carry on. <laughs> You're three years old. Your mother comes up to you. Beware of crimson peak. That maybe that should they should that should be a a tampon commercial for for Halloween, you know. Beware the crimson peak. Wear Kotex. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, I went to this movie uh, based on the trailer, and I was blown away. And I too have been a, a fan of Guillermo del Toro's uh, previous films. Uh, not so much Pacific Rim, but I did enjoy the first two Hellboy movies. Uh, I really liked. Uh, the Devil's Backbone, Mimic even. Uh, I didn't think it was great, but I thought it was really good. And especially Pan's Labyrinth. So going into Crimson Peak, which has been billed as the first American horror movie by Guillermo del Toro, or the first American, or not American, English-speaking horror movie by Guillermo del Toro, I was overly, I felt let down. Because during the during during the press runs for the movie 
he kept talking about how this was going or this is a hard R horror movie and how Warner Brothers kept trying to get him to saw or, or Legendary Pictures was trying to get him to soften the movie down to a PG-13 rating. And he kept saying, no, 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 it's going to be R-rated. I want to make an awesome R-rated R fucking horror movie. And so I was expecting a hardcore horror film. And honestly, with the exception of how one human dies by the hand of another human at the beginning of the movie, and by the one death at the end of the movie by the hand of a human upon another human again, the movie could have been PG-13. I mean, they say fuck once. They, the blood the, is, is all CG blood on the ghosts and in, in, in the ghouls, and blood does get on other people. You really don't see any hardcore stabbing until the very end of the movie. So this movie easily could have been PG-13. Therefore, the movie easily could have, uh, could have attracted younger folk to the box office and could have made a bit more money. At least maybe double the, double the amount that it made this past weekend, which is, is basically just, just pennies compared to what I'm sure they were, uh, they were expecting for it to make. And the movie has been getting good ratings. It's beautifully shot. It's a beautifully made film. But the movie is only creepy on its surface instead of it being creepy and scary and horrific at its core. Guillermo del Toro is a great filmmaker, but... When you're a great filmmaker, you have the tendency of being a great bullshitter. And whenever you have a catalog of really good movies, and, uh, you know, like, like Tarantino, like people love Tarantino, and it doesn't matter what Tarantino says, or it doesn't even matter what Tarantino puts out, people are going to go see his movies, and the majority of his fans are going to love every single movie that he puts out, despite any flaws. Why? Because people will always have a reasoning for those flaws. And that's how I feel with Guillermo del, del Toro, because you read these reviews. Uh, there's this review here on, uh, on cinemablend.com, even, that I found uh, while I was pulling up my news before the show. Crimson Peak will make you believe in ghosts, but it will make you believe in love. Most important, it'll scare the hell out of you. That's the title of this article, of this movie review. And the movie doesn't scare the hell out of you. The, the love story is so boring. The love story is so in your face. Exactly all what Matt said about how it's dated, but it's not like... I, I don't mind it being a gothic horror, but it's the love story that just really... I, I went with my girlfriend who, who loves... The love actually, you know, she loves Sense and Sensibility. She loves The Pride and Prejudice. All the Jane Austen movies... And this movie bored her to death because it wasn't entertaining. And also because I think Guillermo del Toro is just a really good bullshitter when it comes to his movies, especially this movie. So again, based solely on the visual appearance of the film, especially the idea of Crimson Peak being the red clay coming out on the snow or seeping through the snow during wintertime, giving the snow this really cool blood color. You know, the visual flair, as well as the acting from Mia Wasikowski and Tom Hiddleston and Jessica Chastain, which I got to say that Wasikowski, I mean, every movie I see her in, she has been phenomenal. And this is no exception. She is really, really good in this movie. It's just the movie is not entertaining enough. So uh, I give this one 
out of five. Again, I still kind of enjoyed it. It still could be because I'm I'm somewhat of a follower of <laughs> of Guillermo del Toro, but it's I don't it's it's kind of it, it has the potential of being more of a snooze fest than it being something invigorating to most audiences. So 2.75 out of 5 for me. Awesome. All right. Well, that is going to bring us to Goosebumps, the 2015 American 3D live action slash computer animated horror film, horror comedy film. And it's based on the children's book series Goosebumps by R.L. Stein. Um, directed by Rob Letterman and stars Jack Black and pretty much no one else that I can think of that you've ever really heard of. But um, this follows the <clears throat> the exploits of a young boy in a New England town who is new and inadvertently moves next door to R.L. Stein. And through a series of misadventures and misunderstandings, accidentally sets all of R.L. Stein's monsters loose upon the town in New England. The little town—it's a little town in Delaware. Now, the thing is, is that R.L. Stein, when he wrote his books, he wrote them with a magical typewriter that actually imbued the pages with these real monsters, and so the actual manuscripts have to remain locked, otherwise the monsters will get away. Um, and so once these monsters have invaded the town, now we have to go and get them all back. Uh, I have to say, I went and saw this movie. I watched, I actually watched Crimson Peak and Goosebumps in the same night. I watched Crimson Peak first and then literally left the theater, drove home, picked up my oldest daughter, drove back to the theater and then <laughs> went and saw Goosebumps. This movie, and she's eight, and this movie literally scared her to tears. So I assume that for kids, this is a pretty intense and scary movie. <laughs> um, now, we don't let our kids watch a lot of stuff that's not from the kids section of Netflix, unless, of course, we're watching as a family. And so she's a pretty innocent kid overall. And maybe that may, might be why it affected her more than possibly other kids who are like six or seven and are already playing GTA 5. Why the fuck would you do that to a six or seven year old? I don't know, but whatever. Um, so I'm going to have to give this a pass in the horror department for kids because, I mean, this is obviously a family movie. In terms of the fun side, I couldn't help myself. These kids, the, these teenagers were so stupid that it was funny. The comedy relief was good. Jack Black was definitely doing Jack Black, but it was a slightly restrained style, and I liked the mannerisms that he gave this fictionalized version of R.L. Stein. I also thought that the cameo for R.L. Stein, yes, of course, you know it's in there somewhere, I thought that was very cleverly addressed, and that is all I will say about that, so that you can be surprised, or at least somewhat entertained when you find it as well. Um, special effects, again, I'm looking at this from a family standpoint, um, 
my daughter thoroughly enjoyed the fun aspects, was scared, as I said, to tears at one point uh, because of the intense horror stuff. But from an adult's perspective looking in, it's really pretty blasé. Now, I think that's done so that it can be fan, uh, family friendly, and so I'll give it a pass but just kind of a pass. That's really where the biggest draw for me on this film comes from. But um, enjoying it in a theater with other families on a Saturday night, sitting with my daughter who was definitely invested into the film and actually legitimately laughing at a lot of the gags that they pulled, and not all of them, but quite a, quite a few, uh, I, I have to say I really enjoyed the film. It's not perfect. It's definitely got its flaws. It is designed for families. So unless you have strong nostalgia factor, you're not really going to get a lot of the, You're not going to get out of this a lot out of the film either. And I was too old for Goosebumps. Um, I, I was definitely exposed to it. My sister is about five, almost five years younger than me. So when I even though I was too old for Goosebumps, she was right in the zone for it. So, of course, she had the books. She watched the stupid series on SNCC or whatever it was, right, with Nickelode Saturday Night Nickelodeon, right? SNCC, yeah. Um, and so if the nostalgia factor is strong for you, then you will probably get something out of it. Uh, if you didn't, I would, and, and it's not family-oriented for you, I would say stay away. For me, I had a good time with my kid, and I really enjoyed it. It was scary for her as an 8-year-old. Four stars. There you go. What do you got, sir? The, sh the show wasn't that stupid. <laughs> <laughs> As you can tell, I was... Uh, yeah, I read these books. Not all of them, but I was a big fan of R.L. Stein and uh, Goosebumps, as well as all those that are my age. Uh, in fact, I really liked how this movie was geared towards, in a way, people my age... Which is kind of a good thing and a bad thing because upon watching this movie, it became apparent that they were trying to uh, please the fans and also and, uh, and and especially to please the younger audiences. Why? So the series can find another audience, uh, and it also helps that a lot of kids that are my age that grew up reading the books, and even those that are just a couple of years older than me, a lot of us have kids. Well, not I shouldn't say us, but. Uh, a lot of a lot of my friends that have read these books already have kids that are nearing the age of well being able to read goosebumps and being able to watch these movies and of course at the end of this movie they set it up for another film in some way which i guess was creative um but i think it would have had more of a of a impact and would have had me clamoring for a new one if the movie fixed the issues that I thought it had. Um, you could tell that they were trying to go for the Spielbergian type of movie from the 80s where it's uh, where, where it's like these kids that are going on an adventure, which is very much like the spirit of the books because in the books it pretty much all pertain to kids because the books are, are, uh, are aimed, you know, are, are, uh, are aimed towards kids. And so these kids were having to deal with monsters and aliens and and evil uh and evil dolls and all that stuff 
And it was just exciting because it was the idea of when I was a kid, like, oh shit, you know, I, if, if all this was real, that would be me in these books. Like, I would be that kid. I, and especially uh, later on, closer to the, uh, closer to the end of when, uh, when I kind of stopped reading the books, the Choose Your Own Adventure became super popular. And I say it was close to the end when I stopped reading the books, but it was, it was probably about a good three years or so before I stopped reading the books uh, when those Choose Your Own Adventure uh, ones came out. And those were exciting because, yeah, it kind of cut down the length of the book a bit, but it was fun. You know, you got to choose this next stupid thing for your character to do, and it was exciting, and it made you more a part of the of the book. And what was also good about the book is that each book was one story. And that is what I wanted more of uh, and would have liked more so than a, uh, than, than a monster mashup of a movie that we got with, uh, with this Goosebumps film. They pretty much just have way too much going on, which rushed everything that deserved more attention. It was, it was beautiful. It was an imaginative film, of course, but there were just way too many set pieces, you know, of course, for every new monster that they're going to unveil that's been, uh, uh, that's been uh, released or unleashed upon the town, they have to reveal that monster in a totally new set piece, like uh, in a supermarket, like in the house, like in the school, like at the, like at the town fair, the abandoned town fair, you know, just stuff like that. And yes, they create these beautiful uh, really cool to look at set pieces and really fun moments. It's just rushed because they're just trying to do way too much. And it also doesn't help that the setup took a little while to get to um, the action of the film. And the movie isn't that long. It's a little over 90 minutes. And yet it just has all this stuff going on. And basically that is the only issue I had with the film. Most of the jokes are hit or, are, are hit or miss, for the kids, as what you've heard from, uh, or not from, Matt's daughter, but <laughs> of what Matt told you about his daughter, she thoroughly enjoyed it. She even got scared. If I watch this, and I know for a fact, if I watched the same movie as a kid, I probably would have liked it because it was a movie based off a series of books that I love and I cherish and I always look forward to reading on the weekends. And based on that, I gotta say, it it was it was just kind of fun to watch it, you know, kind of like with Matt and watching House. This kind of put me back into in, into into reading these books as a kid. It's just the only downfall, the only issue, which is actually a big issue in my book. And I would have thought this was a big issue as a kid. All the stuff that was going on because of all the congestion in the film, but I still liked it, so I give it three point two five. Out of five, take your kids to go see it and let us know if they cry <laughs> a lot. <laughs> Indeed. Oh, and as a bonus, uh, my daughter did read one of the Goosebumps books, the one about the vampire dog, uh, and she went to look at another one, um, the one about a bug or something like that. And <clears throat> small spoiler alert, when the dog makes an appearance in the movie... She was like, Daddy, that's it. That's the dog. That's the vampire. That's a vampire dog. And I'm like, Libby, honey, you got to be quiet. We're in a movie theater. <laughs> anyway, I thought that was... Uh, <laughs> I did. I was like, okay. All right, thank you. All right, that's good. So uh, I guess she was glad they put that one in there. I don't know. If she were to rate it, what would she rate it? Uh, I think she would probably give it 
um, in the three range because she she said at the end of the day she was more scared by it, and this was her very first. I, for an eight year old, this was her very first horror movie, and so uh, I don't know. She's she seems to be pretty turned off of horror at the moment. <laughs> so, <laughs> I guess maybe a few too many goosebumps, <laughs> as it were. Anyway, so next week, uh, I guess, is going to be like Halloween week by the time all this wonderful stuff comes out. Uh, So we're going to do some Halloween flicks for you. We've got I Married a Witch. We've got Carnival of Souls and Vampire. Now, these are all going to be uh, VOD and also available on Hulu. If you are into that, Uh, they are also classic films. They're from... uh, 1932, 1942, and 1962, not respectively, but just to give you an idea of the classic nature of them. And I believe that ends all that for the movies and everything and brings us to the spiel, does it not, sir? Spiel on! All right, well, the music you've been listening to for our intros has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can find them at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast, and you can find us at SLSCast.com. You can also find us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to us, the show at SLSCast.com. You can also follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at nitwit12345. You can also climb aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. And of course, don't forget you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to William Cat, I get to say this. When I play a good guy, I try to explore them and figure out what shapes them and makes them interesting. When I'm playing a bad guy, I try to explore everything that makes them good. No one ever really thinks that they're a bad guy. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll catch you next week for Halloween Week. again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com, at the SLS Cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.